Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fifth episode of Apple Finch Pudding, your gateway into the world of science. Today's introduction will be a little different. Both my co-host and the scientist for today will be joining me from the beginning of the episode, as they are a couple. My co-host for today is Kira Pretz. Kira recently obtained her PhD on the physiology of ferns at Yale University and secretly loves the K-pop band BTS. Her very own 007 and our scientist for today is Mike Bond. Mike is a sixth-year graduate student in Craig Cruz lab and also recently obtained his PhD at Yale University, but in chemical biology rather than ferns. During his time in New Haven, he has actively been involved in outreach with local elementary and middle schools, and his newly developed pandemic hobby is fishing. Okay, that was quite a mouthful, so thank you for joining me, Kira and Mike. You both recently finished your PhD. I think your defenses were only about a week apart or something. So how did that go in the Pratt's Bond household? Yeah, that was kind of a crazy time for us. You know, we were both trying to finish the writing and then we had the defenses so close together. So there was a lot of stress going around, but we, you know, we made it through and we're almost at graduation as well. It was nice that Kira went first though, because I could watch her and then learn from how that experience went. But definitely the, the few weeks before hers, there was a lot of stress in the house. Yeah, I can imagine. It was one week apart or was it more time in between? Um, it was two weeks apart. Two weeks. And Mike was able to learn from Kira's mistakes, if, <laughs> exactly. the, if she made any. I wouldn't say mistakes. She gave a very good presentation that made much more sense than my, than my presentation. And she had cool videos of ferns, so I, I couldn't compete with that in mine. So actually, Kira, I saw your presentation, and I know you're not a scientist for today, but can you tell us at least a little about it? Like, why did you study ferns? Yeah. So first of all, I am a plant ecophysiologist. So that just means that I study the structure and function of plants and how they respond to their environments. And ferns in particular are a really understudied group of plants, despite being really diverse. In terms of species number, they're second only to the flowering plants. And they've been around also for 400 million years, which is quite a long time. So, you know, I think it was about time that we start to build our understanding of fern ecophysiology as well. So not a lot is known about that physiology then? Yeah, I mean, ferns have been traditionally excluded from a lot of ecology-based studies, and they're pretty underrepresented. You know, I think that more people are starting to study them now. And since they've been around for so long, they can inform our understanding of the evolution of other plants as well. Okay. And you also love BTS. Can you tell us why you love BTS? Yeah, that's a great question. So for those who don't know, BTS is a K-pop band that has been rising to incredible international fame. And I found them on YouTube one day and was just really impressed with their dancing and singing skills, even though I couldn't understand them because they were singing in Korean. But it's been a really fun hobby for me. I've met a lot of people who are also fans. And I just think BTS has a really great message of positivity and self-love throughout their music and their lyricism is really amazing as well. So they've inspired me to start learning a little bit of Korean as well. Yeah, I was going to ask, so you're actually learning Korean now. Yeah, Mike actually got me a BTS like learn Korean package and I started with some YouTube videos as well. So that's been really fun. 
And that's why Mike is the best boyfriend. Exactly. <laughs> and Mike, you started fishing. How did you come to fishing? For me, it sounds like an unusual hobby, but I don't know. Uh, so I, I always uh, liked the idea of fishing as a kid, but there are not many fishermen in my family. So I was given a pole when I was a kid, but then didn't really know how to use it. So I was the kid that was like, you know, casting onto the road and like reeling it back in because I had no way to get to any water where there were fish. So then during the pandemic, I had my own car, have a little bit of money from, you know, the graduate student stipend and decided I'm going to buy a rod and try to figure out how to actually fish. And one of my uh, my best friends from college who was still in the area before he, he moved off for his uh, residency, I uh, was really into fishing and, and helped me learn how to catch trout, which can be a little bit of a finicky species. And that, that's my favorite species to catch. You always go for trout. That's usually what I target. Yeah, they're really pretty fish. Uh, and there are several species that live right here in Connecticut. They were all introduced and there's a stocking program through the Department of Environmental Protection. But Connecticut surprisingly has one of the best trout fisheries in the in the entire country at the Farmington River in, in northern Connecticut. So I, I also try to go up there and was recently fortunate enough that Kira and I took a little vacation after we defended and we went down to Virginia and visited Shenandoah National Park. And I got a chance to fish there, which was a really great experience. And if you fish trout, do you throw them back or do you eat them? That depends on the time of year. In the winter, which I got to say is my favorite time to fish because there's no one else on the river and I'm all alone, which is great. Minus my buddy who comes along with me sometimes. But during the spring and the summer, I do sometimes keep But I'm primarily catch and release because if we all kept, then there would not be many fish left to keep catching. That's true. There's a limit to the size that you can keep as well, right? And it depends on the time of year. Yeah. So the regulations actually just changed in Connecticut and it's really confusing as to what is you know, legal and not legal now, but basically there's now no, there used to be a closed season for trout. So you couldn't target trout in the winter before this year, but now the season is open all year round, but it's catch and release only until April 1st for like trout management areas. So these are areas where Connecticut environmental protection really tries to keep the numbers of fish high and maintain a good habitat for them. But then in wild parts of the streams or the open parts of the streams, you can usually keep more fish than you could in the trout management area. So it's like two in these TMA areas, and then you can keep five per day in a open area. So in winter there aren't, but like in summer, are there a lot of people fishing trout in your area? Yeah. Once opening day starts, uh, if you try to go on a Saturday or a Sunday at any time after, you know, 10 or 11 AM, there's going to be a lot of people fishing. Sounds cool. So I'm going to dive into my first question now. My first question is always the same, and that's for a science joke or a fun fact or an anecdote. And I'll start with you, Mike. Do you have a science joke or anecdote or something? Yeah, well, being half an organic chemist, you know, I, I do like to tell chemistry jokes, but I don't like to tell them all the time. I, I only like to tell them periodically. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I really thought you were just talking and that came the punchline. I was like, okay. <laughs> really effortless delivery there. You did well. You did well. <laughs> and you, Kira? Mine is pretty cheesy, but it's a question. So why do plants go to therapy? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> To get to the root of their problems. <laughs> I told you it was cheesy. Yeah. Now you got to stop the show right there. It's we're done. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're it's done. Finished. <laughs> um, I actually don't have a joke for today, but I do have a fact. And it's just in general, when things get warmer, material expands, it's thermal expansion. 
Water is an exception. It actually expands when it freezes. But in general, for example, metals are a good example. They expand when it gets warmer. That's also how a classical uh, thermometer works. Uh, like mercury expands and then a larger part of the tube is filled. So you read a higher temperature. But also the Eiffel Tower is made of metal. And on a hot summer day, it's about 15 centimeters taller than winter. Wow. So if you're climbing up to the top in summer, you've got a little bit farther to go. Yeah, like half a foot. <laughs> Not that much. but <laughs> Still, it makes, makes a difference though. You know, there's a lot of stairs. Yeah. But that's why when engineers make bridges and stuff, they have to account for those small changes. Otherwise, there can yeah. be like, you know issues with structural integrity because there is a is a change between the seasons which is kind of crazy yeah and those changes can have immense impacts on the structures well yeah that was my fun fact for today <laughs> so um mike you're clearly a scientist and you already said that you work in chemistry but it's like biological chemistry but what does that mean exactly biological chemistry yeah so i'm in a, a field it's a pretty new field that's called chemical biology and it might sound similar to biochemistry, but there's a distinction between the two. So biochemistry is the study of the chemistry of biological systems. So trying to understand the chemical reactions that are going on inside our body that are done by enzymes or these proteins that are these molecular machines that help our cells grow and survive. Chemical biologists instead are interested in using chemistry. So finding or making small molecule compounds to perturb or disrupt biological systems. And so in my lab or in Craig Cruz's lab, the lab that I, I did my PhD work in, we've been trying to develop new cancer therapies that take advantage of cellular processes that are important for destroying proteins. Okay, so that's a lot of information. <laughs> So you're looking at enzymes for cellular processes that can destroy proteins. Yeah, that's basically the, the gist of it. So to give a little bit of background on it, you know, these molecular machines, these proteins, just like any machine, you know, just like your car, they can break down over time. And so a cell doesn't want a broken machine around, so it needs to get rid of it. Now, it wouldn't be a good idea for a cell to just get rid of any protein at random because that would probably make the cell die. So one way that it can do this is that it can actually label this protein as trash. And then there is this thing inside of a cell called a proteasome, which is like a garbage disposal that will chew up the proteins that are labeled as trash. And my lab has developed small molecules that can stick to the trash labeling machinery inside cells and force it to label proteins that we want to destroy as trash. And then the cell will go and chew them up. So you want to label proteins to destroy them, but what do these proteins do? Why do you want to destroy them? That's a great question. So most diseases, uh, especially cancer, are the result of dysfunctional proteins. Typically, it's proteins that are hyperactive or they're doing their job a little bit too well. And so these are proteins that the cell uses to grow. And so if those proteins are acting at too high of a level, then the cell will grow more and it can become a tumor. And so these small molecules that we use force the cell to destroy these overactive proteins, and then the cell won't grow as much and will most likely die. So those proteins are actually replicating too often, and that's more or less what cancer is? Or do you have a good definition for cancer? Uh, so, so cancer is a uncontrolled cell growth. So it's not necessarily the protein that's being made a lot. It's just that one protein is hyperactive and it's constantly telling the cell to grow. 
And so even though there are a lot of checks and balances to make sure that cancers don't happen, that's why cancer is a rare disease. However, when a protein becomes mutated or becomes dysfunctional, it can tell the cell to keep growing despite all of these negative factors. And so it's those proteins that we're targeting, the ones that are just telling the cell to keep growing and, and keep dividing. So you want to label those proteins that tell the cell to keep dividing, and then you want to destroy them. So you're solving cancer for everyone. <laughs> so that's the ultimate goal. Uh, and, and to really highlight the impact of this research, Craig was able to start a company based on the technology that our lab is using. The company is called Arvinus. And they've taken two of these molecules and they're actually in uh, stage two clinical trials right now for the treatment of prostate and breast cancer. And we're able to destroy cancerous proteins in humans, which is pretty amazing considering that it all started out as an idea where you were treating cells on a dish and now actual humans are getting these drugs and, and we're able to destroy the proteins in the context of an entire human, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, it really sounds amazing. Are those the two main cancers that your protax can target, or does this work for a variety of cancers? Oh, she said the word protax, which I didn't even use yet. Uh, yeah. so <laughs> I think you guys know each other. Yeah, is, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, maybe. What is a protax? So the molecules that I've been alluding to, we call them protax, which stands for proteolysis targeting chimera. And if we break that down, proteolysis is the breakdown of proteins. So as I've said before, we're trying to destroy proteins. And then this targeting chimera part means that our molecule actually has two pieces. So on one end, we have a piece that binds to that trash labeling machinery. And then on the other end, we have a small molecule that binds to that protein we want to destroy. And they're chemically connected to each other by what we call a linker region that can have different lengths and compositions. And those can be changed depending on which protein you're trying to destroy. So there is no limit to the type of cancer that you could target with these compounds. It just so happens that the first protax that were made in the lab targeted proteins that were important for prostate and for breast cancer. And so that's where a large focus of the company has been because it was already shown that this could be achieved. However, in the lab, we're doing slightly more exploratory work. And so we're targeting all kinds of cancer. So my thesis focused on lung cancer as well as pancreatic cancer. And is there a big difference in cell types or in the structures you need to create for the different types of cancer? So the overall idea of the protac is the same. So, you know, there's one compound on one end connected to another compound on the other end. But yeah, the actual protein that you're trying to destroy will change depending on the cancer, because although we call cancers one disease, there are actually many different diseases. And so they can vary based on the tissue of origin, which is pretty interesting because a big thing in cancer is thinking about when cancers metastasize or when they move around the body. Metastasize, is that moving? Yes. Or, yeah. Yeah. When yeah, a cancer okay. metastasizes, it means it's moved from its original site and now has invaded another organ system that can be, you know, on the other side of the body. What's interesting about it is that someone, you know, can clinically present with metastasized cancer that's, let's say, in their lung. And so you think that they have lung cancer, but the cancerous cells are more like the tissue of origin. So if it was pancreatic cancer that metastasized to the lung, even though the lung now has a tumor in it, those cells that make up the lung tumor are actually much more like pancreatic cells and those mutated pancreatic tumor cells, which is kind of crazy to think about that cells that were in your pancreas that's in a completely different environment than your lung can travel across your body and start growing in, in other places, which is why learning how cancers do that gives us a really big insight into how cells work. 
So you actually can have more or less pancreas cancer in your lungs? Essentially, yeah. That's what some metastasis can be like. And how does it get there? Is it through the blood vessels? Yeah, it's it's mostly through the bloodstream. So what can happen is, you know, cells can kind of break off from the main tumor. And there's still a lot of research and a lot of things that aren't known exactly about how cells are able to kind of make their voyage from the first site to where they metastasize. But essentially, as, as I understand it, they kind of break off, they go through the circulatory system and blood vessels, and they are able to kind of latch on to another organ and start growing. But I, I don't know if all of the molecular underpinnings of that are fully understood quite yet. So can doctors trace the origin of the cancer then? Like, let's say they find the tumor in the lungs, but those cells are more similar to the pancreas cells. So is that how they discover that it's actually pancreatic cancer? Uh, yeah, so that's a great question. It would be a really good question for a pathologist who's someone who actually studies how cancer cells look under a microscope. You can take a biopsy, take a piece of the tumor, and you can stain for different markers that will be present on different cells that can give you a hint of what the origin of the, the tumor is from. You can also do mutational analysis. So from that biopsy, you can extract DNA and you can sequence it to try to figure out what all the base pairs are. And if there are particular mutations that are usually associated with cancers. So for many different cancers, there's kind of a sequence of mutations that they'll get. And so there are proteins that are more commonly mutated in some forms of cancer versus others, which is how we design our Protax. We want our Protax to go after the protein that's most important for that cancer growing, not just a protein that's important for growth in general, so that there's some specificity to our Protax. Is there a danger for the Protax to attack healthy cells? So there is the potential for that, but there are a lot of things that we do to try to not have that happen. So there are two main ways that we can do this. One is that the protein that we're after, we can use molecules that specifically stick to the mutated form of this protein that we want to get rid of. And so that's what I did in part of my thesis work. We developed a protac for a protein called KRAS G12C. Oh, that one. Yeah. 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 So, so KRAS right. is a, a really... Uh, highly sought after targeting cancer. So it was actually the first oncogene that was identified in the early 1980s. And ever since then, people have been trying to generate therapies that target KRAS. However, for several reasons, mostly that it's just really hard to find molecules that stick to it because what medicinal chemists look for when they're trying to find molecules that stick to proteins is they want like a, a big pocket or a groove or something that the molecule can fit into and then stick there. And KRAS just doesn't have any of those. It has a really flat surface. So it's really hard to find stuff that sticks to it. But fortunately, this KRAS G12C mutant, so what does G12C mean? That is where the mutation is. So there's a, a glycine, which is one of the amino acids that makes up proteins. And in this mutated form, that glycine has become a cysteine. And to not get too much into the chemistry weeds here, but as a chemical, glycine is like pretty inert. Nothing can really react with it. However, cysteine is reactive. And so you can actually find a molecule that will react with that cysteine, which is not present in the normal healthy version of KRAS. So you can find a molecule that reacts with that cysteine. And so it will only stick to and stop the mutant KRAS from working. And so fortunately, about 15 years ago, Kevin Shokat's lab over at UCSF was able to identify some compounds that could stick to this KRAS G12C mutant. And we used analogs 
or newer versions of those compounds to make our ProTech that is able to get rid of KRAS G12C from cells. So if I would have to summarize, I would think that we have the protein that has building blocks, the amino acids, and in the cancer, one amino acid has changed, has mutated, and that changed amino acid, that building block, that's something you can attach to. And that's what you're looking at. You want to attach something to that changed amino acid to tag it. Exactly. Yeah. It just so happens that, you know, this mutation helps KRAS be more active and we can take advantage of that because now we can find something that specifically binds to that cysteine. And so there's many examples of this, both covalent. So covalent is when it sticks to it and it can't come off, but there's also non-covalent or where, you know, a molecule can bind and then come off and then go back. There are situations where mutations just create new pockets that allow a compound to fit in there in the mutated version, but not in the normal version. And so there's this whole area of drug discovery called structure-guided design, where people are actually trying to figure out how does the normal protein look versus the mutated protein? And can we find any different nooks and crannies in the mutated protein and find chemical matter that specifically stick to the mutated forms of those proteins? And those are the compounds that we want to use in our protax because it will allow us to only destroy the mutated protein. I might be wrong because I'm just trying to interpret what you're saying, but it sounds like the DNA is also a little different in the cancer cells and the other cells. Because I thought that the DNA in your whole body is the same in every cell, but not every cell has the same expression of your genes. But in this case, your DNA is not the same in every cell. That's exactly right. So when you're born, you know, at, at conception, that is, I would say the one time where all of the DNA hundred percent and all of the cells is, you know, is most likely exactly the same. However, over time, as cells divide, they can accrue mutations and not every cell in the body is going to have that same mutation. Now there are instances of like familial cancers where you're actually born with mutations that are in specific tissue types, you know, so it might be your colon or it might be a blood cancer where there are specific mutations, but over time, people can just get mutations that lead to cancer. And so your DNA is not exactly the same in every cell. Sometimes there are mistakes that are made when DNA is being replicated. Also, just in the environment, there can be toxins that can mess up your DNA and, and can cause mutations. I think radiation is something that people are probably most familiar with. So yeah, it's, it's those DNA changes that ultimately lead to the protein changes that then allow cells to grow out of control. And, and there are therapies that are actually trying to target the DNA rather than the protein. So we're focused on the protein side of things, but there are plenty of people that are targeting the DNA side of things. And then there's a molecule in between there. So there's DNA that has the code. Then there's RNA that is the kind of middleman between the DNA and the protein. So it's what the cell actually reads to make the protein. Uh, there are also people that are targeting cancerous RNAs with different therapeutics. So there's people working at each link in the chain, but we're, we're focused mostly on proteins. Do you know how big these changes are? Is it like half a percent or is it 10% of your DNA that's changing? Because that would be immense. Or is it like a fraction of a percentage? Yeah, so I, I don't know exact numbers, but it's not a large amount of DNA. So there is some redundancy built into the genetic code. There are things called silent mutations where there's a change in the DNA sequence, but it actually doesn't lead to a difference in the protein sequence. So the protein that's ultimately made is the same. 
And so because of that, the body can kind of withstand some amount of mutational burden. So it is a really small percentage of the DNA that's mutated that leads to cancer, but I, I can't really put a number to it. As you said, so we have the DNA and from the DNA, we get RNA. And based on the RNA, we create proteins. We have talked a lot about targeting the proteins to destroy them in cancerous cells. But I think most people, when they hear proteins, they think about people going to the gym and eating <laughs> a lot of protein. So what do proteins do? What, what is the difference between those proteins and the proteins you're targeting? Yeah. So, you know, the, the generic word protein that we think of when we think of, you know, people lifting weights and having a protein shake, that's more of the basic amino acid building blocks that you're taking in that then become proteins. But the proteins that I'm talking about are these molecular machines or enzymes that have these specific three-dimensional shapes. So the way that a protein is made is it's made kind of amino acid by amino acid in a long kind of linear chain. And then as that chain gets longer and longer, it starts to fold in on itself. So you can kind of think of like what happens when you're rolling up your headphones and how that all folds up, right? And so it folds in on itself and takes on a specific three-dimensional structure. And that structure allows it to carry out its function. And there's a saying in molecular biology that form follows function. So these shapes allow the proteins to carry out reactions within the cell. You know, so to do things like make nutrients for the cell, they'll have specific places where a precursor molecule can bind and then get converted into whatever nutrient the cell needs. There are also structural proteins. So just like how we have a skeleton, cells have skeleton and it's called the cytoskeleton or cellular skeleton. And so it's made up of proteins that are kind of like Legos that stick together and make long chains that rigidify the cell and allow it to attach to surfaces. A lot of people are also looking into the folding of the proteins, as I've heard. There was also a game online for it, actually, for people to try to fold the proteins themselves, because it's apparently really hard to get those structures or to model them. I assume those structures are important for your research as well. So how do you tackle that or how do you take that into account? Yeah, so what you're referencing is a really cool software called Foldit, which I think came out when I was in high school. And so it's been around for quite a long time now. And yeah, it allows people to kind of play around in, in a video game type space with how can you best fold a protein. Uh, and because of this, there have been some like students below the graduate level that have worked together to predict structures of proteins uh, that were then confirmed by other methods. You know, in the lab, at least in, in the Cruise lab, we focus on using X-ray crystallography. So we actually grow protein crystals. So proteins will, in their three-dimensional shape packed together in a certain way and form a visible crystal that you can then shoot with x-ray radiation. The x-ray radiation will hit the different atoms that make up the protein and it will scatter based on how it hits it. And that scattering pattern will hit a detector and then computers that can do math that I have no chance of ever actually knowing how to do can deconvolute what those spots on the detector mean. And you can build a model of your protein based on how it diffracts. That's like the most classical way to determine a protein structure is using crystallization. But there's other methods now you could use nuclear magnetic resonance or NMR. NMR is actually the same thing as an MRI. Medically, they just don't call it NMR because they figured patients wouldn't want to take something that had nuclear in the title of it. But crystallography is the main method, which I think I sort of described in a reasonable way that people use to, to figure out structure. And the structure is really important because that's what allows us to find those molecules that are going to stick to these proteins and stop cancers from growing. Those structures are analyzed by using CT. 
computed tomography. So they're analyzed using, yeah, computer softwares that deconvolute these diffraction patterns. Okay, because, yeah, I know Kira has a lot of CT experience. I wouldn't say a lot, but I've dabbled in it. <laughs> That's where we, we became close friends, right? During uh, three or true, four days yes. of constantly doing CT measurements. And we yeah. use the same x-ray source that you use. So that, that same x-ray source that's used for Kira's experiments that are in her dissertation are the same ones that we're trying to use to, to get crystal structures. The exact same place. Yeah, the exact same place. So whenever you see a picture of, you know, one of these beam lines, right, there'll be different paths that the x-rays can take. And some of those rooms will have people with crystals in them praying that they actually see diffraction, which unfortunately does not happen every time you shoot a crystal. Whereas we were using that x-ray source to scan plants and see the internal structures of plants. And that sounds like a major scale difference because we're looking at cells and tissues and that's also really small, but that's something you can imagine more or less. But the scale of proteins, how does that work? I don't think you can see a whole protein based on CT, right? Well, it, it depends. It is the larger the protein is, the, the harder it is to get a full crystal structure of it. The harder it is. Yeah, the larger it is, the, the harder it is. Because what happens a lot is that proteins inside your cell are not always ordered or they don't always have a structure to them. So there's a lot of regions of proteins that are actually inherently disordered. And that's the scientific term for it. There's inherently disordered proteins. And they only become ordered when another protein binds to them. So it's really hard to crystallize something that's not ordered because it's kind of just like flopping around in space, right? And when it does that, it's not able to actually like pack and form a crystal because it can be in any orientation. And so what crystallographers or scientists who do this day in and out have to do is they usually remove those disordered regions and they focus on parts of the protein that are going to form nice three-dimensional shapes that will pack on top of each other. So usually when you're looking at a crystal structure, you're not looking at the whole protein. You're looking at what's called a specific domain or a specific piece of the protein. But it is possible, and it's been done before, that you can take an unstructured region and you can mix it in a tube with the protein that it binds to, and then you can get a crystal structure of that disordered region when it's ordered in the binding site in the context of this other protein. But to give you a sense of scale, these crystals can be anywhere from like two microns to 200 microns. And so size doesn't necessarily mean better diffraction, but you usually want the biggest crystal you can get so that you are sure you're actually hitting it. Because when you're down in the sub two micron, you're just hoping that the x-rays are going to bounce off it. Just also for the listeners, a micron, a micrometer is one thousandth of a millimeter. So that's one. yeah, it's it's like the what the width of a human hair or something. That's the, yeah, okay. the fact that everyone always says when they describe it. And with crystallography, you visualize the structure and then you look for domains that you can tag actually on the protein for your further research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're usually looking for domains that you can then find chemical matter that will stick to that domain and inhibit or stop the whole protein inside a cell from working. And imagine you have visualized your protein and you see how ah, this would be a good region to attach a tag to. How do you go from that? Because I assume you cannot just attach anything. Yeah. So to find small molecules that can stick into these crevices within the protein, uh, it, it's a lot of trial and error. So the main way that's done, there's two primary ways. One is you can use a computer to try to model chemical matter inside the protein structure, just, you know, in silico on the computer. 
So you don't actually do any experiments with the protein. You just have a computer try to figure out where this molecule could stick. And then it gives you, you know, a list of potential molecules, and then you go and, and test them in the lab. Or you can take your protein of interest or your domain of your protein of interest, and you can take a, a large library or a, a large collection of molecules, and you can see if they bind using either biochemical assays. So like, let's say you're working on an enzyme and it is involved in some kind of reaction and you can measure how much of the product it makes. You can take this protein that you've purified, so it's just the protein you're interested in, mix it with whatever substrate, whatever thing it's going to use to make the product. And then you can throw in compounds and see if maybe now there's less product that's being made. That should tell you that your compound is sticking to the protein and stopping it from doing its job. Uh, there's also these newer techniques that we're starting to use in the lab called DNA encoded library screening, which allows you to look at billions of molecules at once that are genetically barcoded. So each small molecule has a DNA tag associated with it. So when the chemists are making the molecules, they're also growing a DNA chain off of the molecule that allows us to barcode and know exactly what the structure of the compound is. And you can take this whole pool of billions of molecules throw it onto your protein, let it stick to the protein, and then you gently either wash or use heat to disrupt the binding of small molecules that don't stick as well. And so you can wash away stuff that doesn't, doesn't really stick. And then you can heat up the protein so that everything unbinds, all the molecules unbind. And then you can use DNA sequencing to figure out, okay, what has survived all of these washes and is probably sticking to my protein. And then you can go and make that compound and test it in cells. Do you use that method a lot or are you doing a lot of crystallography? Because I know you go to the lab a lot. So what is your, what are the methods that you are doing like day in and day out? So the methods that I do mostly are the things that are downstream of a lot of the stuff that I've been describing. So I take molecules and I treat cells and then I can break the cells open and look at how much of a protein is left. So, you know, I take our ProTac, treat a cell with it. And then we look to see if we've actually destroyed the proteins. I've done a lot of that during my PhD. And, and I also do some organic synthesis. So when we get our hit molecules back, I help to actually make those in the lab uh, using organic chemistry. But during my PhD, the lab has gotten interested in DNA encoded library screens. And so we do have some postdocs who have been responsible for doing those experiments. And then they get sent off to a company that does the genetic sequencing and analysis for us. And then they send us a list of compounds and then I go try to make them. It sounds easy, but uh, takes a while to get it going. When putting it simply, you're just putting your protein in a cup, put everything else in a cup and see what sticks and you wash away the rest. Yeah, that is the essence of these large screens, because before, you know, you'd have to do one compound at a time. And although there are robots and things that can make that semi-manageable now, this DNA encoded library technology really lets you look at just a huge number of compounds at once. Yeah, it sounds a lot more efficient. Yeah, it doesn't sound hard. Come on, Mike. You're just putting everything in a cup. And that's it. Exactly. Exactly. Everything goes in a plastic tube. Sometimes it changes color. That's mostly what I, you know, it's mostly science. How did you decide that this is what you wanted to do, like for a PhD? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So I, I've always been interested in, in cancer research. So if we're going to go back to the beginning, 
I got interested because my family, at least on my father's side, harbors the BRCA mutation. So there's a, a mutation in the DNA that causes this BRCA protein to not be made correctly. And you're at a much higher risk for uh, breast and ovarian cancer for women. And so uh, most of the women on my father's side of the family have had to battle one or both of those types of cancers. Um, and so there's always been a close connection to the disease. Uh, and, and that's what got me interested in studying it. And I, I've always been interested in science. And I was you know, one of the kids that wouldn't stop asking their parents why. And that kind of kept going into high school. And then I, I did my undergraduate studies at UConn and I, I worked in a University lab that was- University of Connecticut. Oh yeah, yeah, the University of Connecticut, not the UConn territory in Alaska. Although we, <laughs> we do have the Huskies as our logo. So you know, there, there can be confusion there. But yeah, so I did my undergraduate at the University of Connecticut, where I got my first taste of research. And the lab was kind of focused on trying to understand how a molecule that we had that could kill colon cancer cells, how that worked. And so I got really interested in small molecules and trying to make therapies. And I also had a budding interest in organic chemistry. And when I got into Yale for my graduate studies, everyone at UConn was like, you got to check out Craig Cruz because his lab is doing really cool stuff. And I started reading some of the papers coming out of Craig's lab and just really uh, kind of fell in love with this idea of protax and, and the idea of degrading proteins because it's a big advantage. There are many advantages to protax compared to traditional small molecules. A normal therapy that someone would get you just inhibit, you just stop the protein from working, but the protein is still inside cells. So as I've kind of alluded to in, in, you know, in other parts of this episode, proteins can stick to each other. And when they stick to each other, the cell can respond in different ways. So if the protein is still around, those kind of events can still happen. But with a protac, you completely get rid of the protein. So not only can it not do any like enzymatic function or any chemical reaction that it's supposed to do, it also can't bind to any other proteins. And so it also can't do those functions either. And so you just do a much better job of stopping, you know, a cancer cell from using that protein to grow. So that idea really got me interested in the science and the fact that I could do both biology and chemistry. Yeah. So that made me think, you know, when these protacts are used in drugs down the line, does that have any benefits for the cancer patients? Yeah, so it does for protacts that are kind of at the stage of a clinical molecule that have been optimized and tested. They actually tend to work at lower doses than traditional cancer therapies. And that's because, as I said, they completely get rid of the protein. So you're kind of getting rid of multiple functions of a protein at once. And also they can catalytically get rid of proteins. So one protac molecule can destroy roughly three to four of these, you know, cancerous proteins. And so you don't need as much to get into a cell to actually kill the cell, which means that patients get lower doses. And so hopefully side effects will be limited. And eventually if the drug works and is produced, do people still need chemotherapy and radiation? Or is it just like you take this amount of pills and then you're set? Uh, so, so this is still a chemotherapy. So, so a, a okay, chemotherapy. so this is actually a form of chemotherapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So ke chemotherapy is a pretty broad term that is really just any, you know, chemical that you take to try to kill cancer cells. There's traditional chemotherapy or kind of less targeted chemotherapy. So that those are things like platinum-based drugs that cross-link DNA and they cross-link the DNA of all the cells in your body, but most of your cells aren't growing. So it more affects cancer cells, although that's why like a lot of people get nausea and things because your stomach lining is constantly dividing. And so those kind of chemicals also affect your stomach. 
And then there's more selective therapies or, or targeted chemotherapies, which are these newer inhibitors that are based on those crystal structures I was talking about that bind specifically to the mutated forms of proteins. And then there's this you know, next generation of chemotherapies and, and Protax definitely fall under that. But they can be used like adjunct with radiation. I'm sure that as time progresses and more Protax start entering clinical trials, there will be trials that test to see if radiation and Protax treatment improve cancer outcomes. So you're actually working on the next generation chemotherapy that targets the this specific proteins and that doesn't target the healthy cells. Yeah, exactly. And in another part of my thesis work, so I, I talked about with KRAS G12C, how the, the protein can be kind of specific for a cancer. But the other way that you can make a Protax specific that I, I hadn't talked about is that you can have it bind to trash labeling machinery that's only found in tumor cells. And so that's a, been another part of my research where we're trying to look at this machinery that labels proteins as trash and identify pieces of it that exist only in tumor cells and then find small molecules that bind to those proteins so that then we can make a Protax that targets a protein that might be in all of your cells and might be a better protein to get rid of but you don't want to get rid of it everywhere. But now if we're only able to bind a trash labeling machinery that's found in a tumor, then we should only degrade the protein in a tumor. And so I think that's really where the field is moving. There's a ton of startup protac companies that are focusing on that side of the molecule. And, and so I, I think that's a really exciting space to be in and something that I'm, I'm hoping to continue in my postdoc. So that was actually going to be my next question. Do you want to stay in academia? So yes, you do. For, for right now, yes. I've been fortunate enough to get a, a postdoctoral position over at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute with Kim Stegmeier. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to joining her lab. It, there's a focus on pediatric cancer, which is actually what I wanted to do originally. Originally, I wanted to be a pediatric oncologist and do an MD-PhD But I, I realized kind of very quickly after shadowing that I, I, I was more suited for the lab. So I figured I'll focus my efforts on actually trying to make the therapies to help some of the, the kids with cancer. And so now really getting to do that is going to be really exciting. And it also really fits into your backstory about your family and you really just want to help people. It's a really nice <laughs> sentiment. Yeah, I mean, that's really the ultimate goal, I think, of, of all of the research going on at Yale and in this space. At the end of the day, we want to make compounds, make some therapy that that's going to help somebody. And it makes all of the hours and the experiments that don't work, they're all worth it if something comes out that can help people. And helping people is what you love most about doing research, I guess, or is there something else? Well, I, I think that as the ultimate goal helps keep me sane when all of my stuff doesn't work. But I guess the reason that I, you know, get up every day, even on Saturdays sometimes and go into the lab is because I'm just like very interested in how cancer cells work and how we can kill them. Like what are the, what are the different ways that we can perturb a biological system to get our desired effect? Like the fact that we're able to take a small molecule and essentially hijack a cellular process to do what we want it to do is, is just really kind of amazing to me. And so being able to see how I can, you know, with molecules I make with my own hands, how I can modulate a cell or how I can make a cell do what I want is pretty cool. Pretty powerful, right? You have a lot of power in creating that. You're a demigod. <laughs> I would say if, if anyone is, it's probably more Craig than, than me. I, I just do what he tells me. No, it's you. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> So you work in academia, you want to stay in academia, but... For, for right yeah. now, I, I think a postdoc is a great opportunity because it still allows you to kind of move horizontally. If down the line, I, I become more interested in industry, 
which is, you know, academia is amazing for the fact that you get to really study whatever you want and you have a lot of intellectual freedom. But for the most part, the discoveries that we're making here are decades, if not more away from actually impacting human health. And so I do think, you know, later on in, in my career, I, I may be interested in, in moving over to industry where Although it's a little bit less scientific freedom or intellectual freedom, you're working on things that are much closer to having direct impacts on human health. You're closer to the end result. Yes, but all the innovation or a majority of the innovation happens in academia. And it is really exciting to be on the front lines making discoveries that will become you know, tomorrow's medicines. Yeah, of course. So you already told us more or less, but I assume you also wanted to be a scientist when you were a child because of your backstory, or did you want to be something else when you were a child? Uh, so there were two options that I had as a kid. And actually, when I was cleaning out my childhood bedroom over the holidays this past year, I found one of my old yearbooks. Uh, I think it's a picture of me in third grade. And, and they wanted us to say what we wanted to be. And underneath it, I, I said I wanted to be a baseball player or a scientist. And so, you know, th those were always the two options. I, I grew up a diehard Red Sox fan. It could go either way, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. That 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 could have that could have gone either way. But I've actually been really fortunate here at Yale that I've been able to play on the club baseball team while also doing PhD research. So I, I think third grade me would be pretty proud of getting to to do those things at the same time. Yeah, I was gonna say you still do both of them. Yeah. Now that we're we're moving to Boston, I'm gonna be at Dana Farber, which is like seven blocks or something away from Fenway. I can just live in the dugout and maybe they'll they'll put me in a game. It might be hard to tell yourself. So I'm gonna ask Kira. Kira, is he any good? Yeah, he is. He was um what was it, the 2019 like all-star player on the all-star team? Yeah, I, I made uh is the only it's the only all-star team I've ever made in my life. Uh, but I, I was Still. selected as a New England Club Baseball Association All-Star. Still waiting on my plaque. That's impressive. It's probably my crowning achievement of graduate school. I, I guess next to, you know, dating Kira, but it's, it's pretty high up there. <laughs> so I said it could go either way, but it really could have gone either way. You could have been a yeah. professional baseball player. I don't know if I'd go that far, but uh, both of those things are still pretty close to my heart. So like you said, together with Kira. <laughs> <laughs> so if you weren't a scientist, you were going to be a baseball player, I guess. Yeah. And, and maybe a more realistic second option is that I, I really like to cook. So going into to being a, a chef, I think would have been cool. I have an Italian mother that has taught me well. So yeah, he cooks a lot of our meals and he does it very well. So and most chemists are cooks because chemistry is just cooking, but you know, with things that can kill you. There's a whole field in food-based science based mm -hmm. on chemistry, right? That bear mm -hmm. unusual ingredients. Is that something you do as well? Uh, no, I, I think I think we're more traditional in our ingredient choices, but it is fun to mix things together and then make some meal. So. And is that what you love, that you can just mix random stuff and make something delicious or try to make something delicious? Yeah, yeah. Because like the allure of, of organic chemistry to me is that I can make something that's never existed before you know, and with my own hands. And, and that's the, the same reason I like to cook. Although, you know, most dishes already exist, just making something with my own hands that then we can enjoy. It's another reason that I like fishing as well, because I can like go catch my food with my own two hands and like be a part of that whole process is, yeah, that's kind of what draws me to those things. We're actually coming full circle here. You started with fishing and what you love, and we're coming back to the fishing. I've gotten really into fishing. I try to work it into as many conversations as I can. Are your friends getting annoyed by it? Yeah, for sure. 100%. I mean, Kira definitely is. No, I've taken up fishing as well a little bit. Oh, really? I have my own rod now. Yeah. So you go fishing together or is that not dumb? 
Oh no, we we do. I Occasionally. just I I go too much for anyone to want to go that many times. So I do it a lot by myself, and then yeah, sometimes Kira tags along. She did catch her first trout this year, which was an exciting. That was an exciting moment. Congratulations, Kira. Thank you. Yes. Was it a big one? No, it wasn't. It was, it was pretty good size. It was like a it was like eleven inches. Is that one you ate or one you threw back? No, that that was that was when we threw back. She doesn't eat fish, so all the fish are just yeah. for me. It's okay. all it's all his. Yeah. Are you vegetarian? Mostly. Sorry, that didn't make sense for the conversation. I was just curious. It's okay. <laughs> okay, so we started with fishing. We ended with fishing. We're coming full circle. Is there a take-home message you want to give for our listeners, Mike? Yeah, well, I guess the thing that I would want people to take away from from listening to any program such as this is to just be curious. And if something that we said, you know, is interesting to you, we have the internet at our disposal now, go look it up, read things, you know, become interested and like really kind of take ownership of the things that you're interested in. Because if we don't ask questions, that's, that's when we can start getting into trouble. That's a, a beautiful sentiment. Okay, so this was the fifth episode of Apple Finch Pudding. I want to thank Mike Bond, normally Kira's personal 007, but today our personal secret agent and science bodyguard for the information. And Kira, I want to thank you also for the questions and additional information. Yeah, thanks so much for having us today. This was really fun. Yeah, we had a, we had a great time. Thank you for joining me. Let's meet again for the next episode of Apple Finch Pudding. Mm-hmm.